Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky. Pinch me. Oh my gosh. Okay, do-gooders, I'm going to do something a little different in the intro here because as we're recording this episode, it's a really heavy week in America. And I just have to say that I think it's been a heavy week um, for many, many weeks. Um, and I want you to do something. I want you to pat yourself on the back for being here and leaning into this conversation. And that if you want to do one good favor for the world today, I want you to share this episode and what's about to come out of it with someone, because we need a ripple to the conversations that we're going to have about how to eradicate hate. And it is our profound honor today to have Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, on the podcast today. I think I found out about ADL um, when I was a teenager, and I just gravitated to the words of hope, to the words of harmony, to the way that they hit hate right between the eyes. And we have built a kindness community here and we are for good. And it is a massively growing community. I thank each of you for coming in at your space, but we have got the shepherd (laughs) of kindness and equality here. And I've got to just introduce you to this amazing human that we have on today. We were introduced to Jonathan by just an incredible justice advocate and human being, Elizabeth Abel, who's with CCS. And she is an avid and rabid fan of ADL. And she said, you got to meet Jonathan. He is one of the greatest human beings and he is going to knock your socks off. But ADL is the world's leading anti-hate organization with a distinguished record of fighting anti-Semitism and advocating for just and fair treatment for all. I think that's something we can all get on board with. And he joined ADL in 2015 after serving casual in the White House as a special (laughs) assistant to President Obama as the director of the Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation. And he's here to talk about this book and hold on to your butts because this book could revolutionize everything about the way that we interact and the way we equalize here. It's called It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the unthinkable and how we can stop it. This is really a bracing primer on how we as individuals and organizations and as a society can strike back against anti-Semitism and hate. So our core value, first core value of this company is the simple everyone matters. And if you believe in that and you pour into that, you're going to love this book. But this book is about how Jonathan has made it his personal mission to demonstrate how anti-Semitism, racism, and other insidious forms of intolerance can destroy a society, taking root as quiet prejudices, but mutating over time into these horrific acts of brutality. We saw one this week. It feels like we are seeing them almost every week. So I feel the urgency. But this book is about hope. And this community is about hope. So we are just so honored. Jonathan Greenblatt, get into our house and awaken and, and inspire our hearts. We're so glad you're here. Uh, the pleasure is really all mine. It's so nice that uh, 
we have friends in common like Elizabeth, who's really just an inspired person. I'm happy to be here today and to share a little bit about the book and ADL and, and life more generally. Well, we we never go straight into these conversations because we think it's so important to get to know you as a human being. And we want to know about little Jonathan growing up. Like, take us back. Tell us about your childhood and what informed sort of this winding journey to get you through the White House to the head of the ADL and what you're fighting for today. Well, so I was born in New Haven, Connecticut and raised in Trumbull, which is a little town between New Haven and Bridgeport. You know, I was the first in my family to graduate from college. Um, I grew up in a pretty blue collar environment. My dad's a salesman. My mom was a secretary. Uh, but you know, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Germany, you know, who came, who, who basically lost pretty much everything and came here with no money, no language, no family but was able to carve out a kind of a middle-class existence in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, I would say, despite having seen like the worst of humanity, he believed in the best of it and never lost his sense to use a word that you did before of hope. And so I think in many ways, his ability to, to, to endure and to rise above that, was always an inspiration for me. And when I was graduating from college, I went to Tufts University in Boston, right outside Boston. I wanted to change the world. Like literally, I think in part inspired by him. You know, when I was a young person, some of your listeners may remember, in the 60s and in the 70s and in the early 80s, you know, the Soviet Union, when it was a thing, was extremely sort of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And they pioneered a lot of awful kind of propaganda, blaming Jews for everything. And, you know, Russia had a history before the Soviet Union of slaughtering its Jews. So it wasn't exactly new. But Jews were not able to practice their religion, work in their professions, or leave the country. They refused to let Jews emigrate. And uh, so there was a movement in the 70s and 80s to free Soviet Jews to let them emigrate. That's it. Just let them leave. And I remember my grandfather bringing me to like marches when I must have been seven or eight in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And then something happened a few years later in the mid 80s. To make a long story short, it worked. The Jews were able to leave. Things changed in the Soviet Union because of extraordinary outside pressure. And the idea they were holding these people hostage, which they were, not allowing them to leave, which they wouldn't. Uh, and then the protest movements and other politics, global geopolitical events happened, and boom, they were able to leave. So for me, that left a lasting impression that I could be a part of something to change the world. So when I was graduating from college at Tufts, I was my parents, again, were not political whatsoever. They were focused on you know, earning a living. I wanted to change the world. And there was this guy in 1992 running for president named Bill Clinton. Now you may like him or not like him. doesn't really matter. But I was a work study student. And one of his big ideas was kids could work after they graduated in their communities. And he held up these new organizations. One was this new startup nonprofit called Teach for America. <laughs> and oh. another one was this 
was this new startup, these guys with red jackets called City Year. And the idea was he wanted to create a program, which he called AmeriCorps. Young people would work in their communities after college to help pay their loans. And for me, I was working 20, 25 hours a week, maybe more, like mopping floors and bussing tables. I worked on campus. I worked off campus. I thought that's a much better way to pay my tuition than what I'm doing. And then the other idea Bill Clinton had at the time was universal health care. Again, my dad being a salesman, we never had health insurance. He didn't work for a big company. So this was always a problem in our family. So health insurance, you know, national service, I was really struck by that. So I ended up moving to Arkansas right after I graduated and working for Bill Clinton. And to be really honest, guys, I didn't think he was going to win. I didn't think he was going to get the no- I didn't know he would get the nomination, <laughs> but I wanted to fight the good fight. I wanted to change the world. So I, I moved to Little Rock and then he got the nomination. He named Al Gore, his, his would-be vice president. He won the election. And so for me, I was 21 and it cemented in my brain from the Soviet Jews movement to this, I could change the world. And that has literally been my North Star throughout my career from going to work at the White House as a young person and doing like applied microeconomics. I did international economic policy to going out to be part of the internet revolution, starting Ethos Water with my roommate from business school to running Good Magazine and incubating a venture at Google out of that that grew to going to work in the West Wing as a better formed adult to now doing this job at ADL. Trying to change the world has literally been my North Star. And I think it's you know, it's been a, it's, it's not been a linear path, I would say. It's had its turns. I went from government to business, back to government, now nonprofit. But I felt really blessed to have had this journey. And it's just been a privilege every step of the way. What a gift that that has been your journey. Because I just see you collecting these experiences and the lived experiences. And honestly, like escaping through such a narrow path um, to these remarkable experiences that were hopeful when the underdog won and the little guy won. And now you are at the forefront of that. And I get your emails and I feel like you are on the forefront of fighting for the little guy every single day um, in your position with ADL. Certainly trying. And this is a fight. I mean, I think, you know, like you said, Becky, to start us off, I mean, this has been a heavy week. It's been a heavy few weeks. You know, it's been a heavy year. I mean, the year started with the anniversary of January 6th, and then we had the hostage crisis slash calamity in Colleyville. It's been a heavy several years. There's kind of a through line from Charlottesville to Buffalo. But the real through line is 10 years ago, Sandy Hook to Ovalde, Texas, two days ago. I mean, these are not easy times we're living in. But I have to say, I'm going to pin something at the top of this conversation that I think will be the North Star for me of this conversation is I just, I think about your grandfather and I think about enduring something like what he endured and to come out of that and still believe in the greater good. That is what I want people to channel. What is your grandfather's name? Can we, I want to name him. Bernard Greenblatt or Bernie Greenblatt. Bernie Greenblatt. I want you to do gooders. I want you to channel your inner Bernie Greenblatt today. (laughs) And I want you to take 
that fire, because it is no longer a childlike aspiration to say, I want to change the world because we have tens of thousands of people pouring into this saying, that is actually what I want to do. Take that, listen here, figure out what to do. So thank you for that incredible intro. I mean, walk us through this chapter that you're in right now, the ADL. We all know of the ADL. We all see the work that you're doing, but kind of talk to us about what you see as your mission today? What's the work happening on the forefront that maybe we don't all realize um, to just kind of give context for this book and everything to follow? Well, I mean, so the ABL is the oldest anti-hate organization in America. It was founded in 1913, you know, around the time that this Jewish man was lynched. It's a very famous story, Leo Frank. He was falsely accused of a crime, wrongly convicted and literally torn from his jail cell and hung from a tree by a mob. And the mob that lynched this man, while his body was still hanging from the rope, they all gathered underneath and the town held a picnic to commemorate his killing. And they took pictures and they turned those photographs into postcards and they gave them out as souvenirs to commemorate the killing. So in that moment, you know, the ADL was formed and the people behind the organization They wrote a charter that I think, John, we would call like a manifesto in our current sort of vernacular. And they wrote that the purpose of this organization would be to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So they wrote those words, those very words, haven't changed in almost 110 years. But what's so interesting is, you know, again, 110 years ago, the Jews in this country were very vulnerable and they were weak and they didn't have social standing or meaningful economic resources or any political influence. So it made sense that they would say, we need to come together and defend ourselves at a time when Jews couldn't work in any professions, couldn't buy homes in many places. My great grandfather in Germany arguably lived with more security and more social standing, you know, than Jews in America at that time. Wow. So in this moment, it made sense that they came together to defend themselves and to seek you know, belonging and prosperity. But they also said, we will fight for ourselves. But we will also fight for others, right? Justice and fair treatment to all, not for the Jewish community, but to everyone. It's a very intersectional idea to use the term. We can't be free unless everyone is free. Their struggle is our struggle. We are all in this together. And I think sometimes we almost take for granted that kind of language, that language of service, that language of universalism, but it's encoded into the sort of organizational DNA of ADL. So in the 10s and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, ADL broke open those quotas, changed those laws, went after the discriminatory practices and exposed it. ADL made America a a a safer place for its Jewish community. But then after the Second World War, ADL started advocating for equality for African-Americans. And when ADL filed an amicus brief at the Supreme Court in 1953 in Brown versus Board of Education to fight for desegregating our schools, like today we sort of, I think, liberal-minded people, small L, just take that for granted. Like, of course our schools should be desegregated. But that was by that was certainly not conventional wisdom in the early 1950s. But ADL still took the risk, w- stepped out in front, and said, "We will fight for this." 
just fair treatment to all. And later that same decade, when ADL stood up against Joe McCarthy and the and the scapegoating that he brought to the political conversation, ADL reached out to a young politician, a young senator at the time when, if you remember, the Soviets invaded Hungary. There was a bunch of immigrants who wanted to come in. They couldn't get in. Uh, ADL said, you know, as Jews weren't allowed to come in this country before and after World War II, we need to fight this now. And so they engaged this young politician to write a book to talk about the fact that we're, in, we're a country of refugees and a nation of immigrants. They said, would you write that book for us? He said, I'll write it. He wrote that book for the ADL in 1957. And it was only the second book that John Kennedy ever wrote in his lifetime. He wrote Profiles in wow. Courage. And then the ADL commissioned a nation of immigrants, which I was proud to issue a 60th anniversary edition just a few years ago in 2017. And, you know, I have on the wall of my office. I mean, basically, he writes it in 57. He ends up making immigration reform a cornerstone of his 1960 campaign. He's assassinated in November 1963. LBJ says, I am going to make immigration reform one of my commitments as part of President Kennedy's legacy. And I have on the wall of my office here in New York a telegram sent on October 1st, 1965 from Lawrence O'Brien, special assistant to LBJ, to Ben Epstein, who had my job, inviting him to a signing ceremony on Liberty Island, like below the Statue of Liberty, where LBJ signed the Immigration Act of 1965 into law. I have that telegram on my wall, along with one of the pens that LBJ literally handed to Ben Epstein right there on the spot, because ADL is one of the organizations that made this happen. So like when I have stood up against the Muslim ban, when I've gone to the border and argued for undocumented children, when I have argued as vehemently as I can for America to be more accepting of refugees from Afghanistan or from the Ukraine, you know, literally I sat in the Roosevelt Room of the White House on Tuesday with African-American leaders and those from other communities to make the case for a White House summit on hate crimes. And when I have walked, you know, arm in arm with my Asian-American and Pacific Islander colleagues to help get TAF off the ground, it's because this is what ADL does. This is who we are. We need America to be that more perfect union for all of its people. And so that's our aspiration. That's our ambition. That is our vision here at ADL. Well, as a third-generation descendant of an Italian immigrant, I want to thank you for the, the absolute inclusivity of this work. And I will tell you, you had a primer for this conversation because we dropped an episode with Presca Bay with TAF. You mentioned the Asian American Foundation, and she talked about how your passion, how your drive for this equality and equity goes so far beyond the Jewish community to equalize every marginalized community that is looking for people who will simply grab their hand and give them that hope and that chance of living. And I'm not even talking about a wealthy life, but a healthy and a vibrant life in a free state. And I just want to say to anybody's listening, and I know that I'm deeply emo emotional and I will not make it through this episode without crying a couple times because the, be, just because the week is so heavy. Thank you for bringing it back to the story of this lynching in Atlanta. That is a deeply painful story 
But we constantly say we have to sit in the pain of these moments for a minute and let them come in. And then we need to push it out into how we're going to do good and how we're going to ensure that that never happens again in our communities. And so I got to pivot a little bit to this book because I'm so geeked out about it. And I want you to talk about this title because I don't know that I've had a title hit me in the face as quickly as this one does. And I want to read it again for everyone. It could happen here. Why America is tipping from hate to the unthinkable and how we can stop it. I I want you to talk about where this title came from and where the idea of this, I would call this also a manifesto came out of you. Well, I think it's so a few thoughts. So number one, I mean, again, I think this has been a heavy week. And I am someone who believes in American exceptionalism. But let's be honest, we have a heavy history. And so you yeah, talk about your lineage. It is my recollection that the largest lynching in American history didn't happen to Jews or Blacks, but to Italians, Italian immigrants in New Orleans in 1891, who were lynched, locals and immigrants together for the supposed their supposed role in the killing of like a local police chief, which of course was wrong. But this was at a time when you know Italians were considered in the weird dynamic social construct that is race, Italian Americans were considered inferior. Now, I don't know if you've read Wilkerson's book, Cast. It is so powerful. And she talks about how there is a caste system in this country, if you will, an ad hoc or de facto one. And African Americans are at the bottom of that caste. But on top of that, it's true that the kind of social order changes over time. And in this moment, you know, Italian Americans are privileged in a way that people of color, quote unquote, people of color are not. But it's a fluid thing. But the the, the history of enslavement upon which this country was founded and talking today, which I know this podcast will hopefully live for a long time, but we are, hold on, 731 days since the murder of George Floyd. So this issue of systemic racism against black Americans is a profound and persistent and pervasive challenge we've got to confront. But to put that aside for a moment, I this book, It Could Happen Here, I wrote this book because I was thinking, again, back to where we started this conversation about my grandfather. And, you know, my grandfather, you know, he never talked about the Holocaust. He did not want to talk about it. It was much too painful. But once for a school project, like I think it might have been a sophomore, junior in high school, I interviewed him. It was interview a family member. I interviewed him. I still have the like cassette tape for those of your listeners who remember what that oh artifact is, right? You can put it next to your phonograph. So I taped him and I asked him about what life was like when he was a young person. And he basically, in Germany, he basically said to me, look, it was a great country. It's a great country. And it was the only country he ever knew. My great grandfather, his dad fought in the first world war for Germany. I mean, the idea that one day the only country he ever knew would turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, destroy everything that he ever loved, slaughter almost his entire family and network of friends, and force him to come as a refugee was inconceivable when he was a young person. Frankly, he never would have guessed that one day his grandchildren, me and my brother and my cousins, would be born in America. Never. And then it happened. And my wife is a political refugee from Iran. She came to this country in 88, I think, 88, 89. Iran is the only country she and her sister and their parents, and as far back as they know, it's the only country they ever knew. They're Jews from Iran. And 
they never would have, she never would have guessed, never, when she was a young person, that one day the only country she ever knew would turn on them after the Islamic Revolution, after the rise of like the kind of death cult of Khomeiniism, that would one day regard them as enemies of the state, destroy everything they ever loved, and force them to flee to this country as refugees. And she, again, she came after living through the war and the revolution you know, after being forced to wear a hijab and all of the, you know, the Sharia law. And, uh, you know, my father-in-law, who's still with us, thank God, never would have guessed that one day his grandchildren would be born in America. He thought Iran, like where else would they be born? So Becky and John, I mean, I think flash forward to today, if I think back to what I've seen in this job from Charlottesville to Pittsburgh, to El Paso, to Atlanta, now to Buffalo, I don't take for granted that my grand, and I would tell you guys the same, don't just assume that your grandchildren will be born here in America unless we fight for what we have. Democracy is not some spectator sport you can watch, you know, from the cheap seats and just assume it's going to work out. You know, I'm watching the, the NBA, you know, playoffs right now, and you got the Celtics and the Heat, and you got the Dubs and the Mavs. And, you know, it looks like, you know, the Mavs are going to lose. They're going to come back next season. Like, that's how it works. But there is no next season for democracy. Like, it just is not some, you know, preordained outcome. There's no natural law which says this will endure forever unless we fight for this union. And I don't mean go stand at a school board meeting and scream about, like, COVID precautions. And I don't mean, you know, ban books that make you uncomfortable. And I don't mean, you know, cancel people whose ideas with whom you disagree. What I mean is within our constitutional guidelines, engaging in and living up to the obligations like our founding fathers bequeathed to us. Like they did not intend for a country that would have AR-15s everywhere. That's not what the Second Amendment was about. And they didn't intend the freedom of speech would be the freedom to slander people, or that the freedom of assembly would be the, the freedom to assemble and exact violence on minorities. So I think our Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights and these building blocks of our democracy, we need to understand they will not stand the test of time unless we invest and innovate and enable them to do so. And so I worry a great deal, which is why I wrote the book, because it could happen here. Civil war could happen here. The institutionalized marginalization of a people, not by default, like what Wilkerson writes about, but with intent, could happen here. The willful denial of a people's civil rights. I think we're already seeing some of this unfold. So could it happen here? What's the it? The it is right here. Right now, here is here is this space that we share together. And so we have got to roll up our sleeves like never before if we want to hold on to this gift that is, again, this, this republic. <sighs> you know, regardless of what your personal life experience is listening, I mean, nobody could argue the last couple of years, everything that you thought was normal, everything you thought was protected, is different, like has changed, has been impacted. And so 
it's so believable, you know, to any of us, even our kids, you know, they don't even know what normal is on so many levels. So I think the way that you break this down in the book, you go into the pyramid of hate. I'd love for you to walk us through that because we talk about the power of words. I mean, obviously we believe that we poured into a medium that's about conversations, but what words can elevate into the worst act of violence, you know, that we could imagine. Can you talk about that and how that informs and how we can lean in and understand that? Yeah. So the book, you know, to answer your question, John, uh, look, I wrote this book in many ways because I am worried about where we are. And I do feel like it feels like our country, you know, our institutions have withstood so much tumult in recent years. And even the most impregnable fortress, even the most seaworthy ship, even the most tested vehicle, when it endures exogenous pressure, meteorological pressure, you know, human forces, whatever, you need to like repair. You need to ensure that that ship remains seaworthy, that that aircraft remains capable, right? That 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 truck that you replace the shocks and you revisit, you know, you you you, you rotate the tires and whatnot. And I think we need to do this with our democracy. And so the first half of the book, again, sharing what I have seen uh, and sh- and and trying to recount what I call in the book this American berserk, what it could look like if things unravel. But the second half of the book, to your point, John, is all about the tips and the the tricks, the strategies that AADL has developed over not just decades, over generations to interrupt intolerance, right? To confront and push back on prejudice, to fight hate. And one of our core uh, models for doing that is something called the pyramid of hate. And it's, it's a sort of sociological construct which allows us to kind of not just dismantle, you know, dismantle bias and bigotry, but to understand it through a framework. And so this framework, think of it like a pyramid. So at the base of the pyramid, you know, you have biased attitudes, which is about the kind of maybe indiscriminate or unintentional, you know, ideas about intolerance or prejudice that can take hold amongst people, right? Biased attitudes. And so that can show up as stereotyping or fear of differences or, um, you know, just misinformed beliefs. It's biased attitudes. And then biased attitudes can build up into actual acts of bias, which look like what you would imagine. But this is about at the individual level, I should say. It could be about, about not including someone. It could be about stereotyping a person It could or, or actively scapegoating a group of people, which can then build up into systemic discrimination. The ideas inform acts which kind of harden into practices and policies. Yep. And you can see that across the spectrum, you know, of uh, activity we have in our own country and in many societies, not unique to America at all, but it could be around policing or on education or on housing or on employment, which then can move up into actual acts of violence. And I'm defining that a bit broadly. That could be like verbal harassment. It could be vandalism. It could be assault, which can then go up to the top into what I'll call, you know, genocide. And genocide is not, I mean, this is a very strong term. It's the act of deliberately and systematically annihilating a group of people. But before that, these acts of violence, which can be, I mean, right now we see, you know, in Uvalde, Texas, you know, I mean, I'm going to try not to break down, but we see, 
you know, second graders and third graders murdered in the classroom where they learn. That's an act of such inhumanity that it's difficult to describe. But I look at what's happening in the Ukraine, where years, years of Putin dehumanizing Ukrainians, delegitimizing the country, and enforcing a culture, a culture of, of, I dare say, evil in the Russian armed forces lead to scenes of mass graves and women and children with their hands tied behind their backs shot in the head. Again, it starts at the base of that pyramid and you interrupt, you interrupt the biased attitudes before it mutates into acts of bias, before it further metastasizes into systemic discrimination, before it leaps into real world violence, before it actually culminates in genocide. And so we use this model to try to teach. And you can look at Ukraine, or you can look at the Shoah, the Holocaust, or you can look at what happened in Rwanda, or you can look at what happened in Bosnia. And I use Bosnia in the book, because after years, you know, of discrimination and and scapegoating Muslims in Bosnia, why is anyone, or in the former Yugoslavia, why is anyone surprised that they were then herded into camps and murdered carte blanche? And the idea that we would tolerate this kind of butchery is, is un, it's, it's almost un, this unspeakable butchery just a few decades after the Holocaust is unimaginable, and yet now we see it happening again to the Ukraine under the guise of a national conflict. There was no conflict. There was no conflict, but it was Putin's attempt to erase any Ukrainian identity and recapture some sense of empire. So I wrote the book to share our strategies, to offer the insights that we've learned in my hope that we can stop it happening here. And, you know, like to build upon your whole gestalt with the We Are For Good podcast, we need a revolution in kindness. We need an epidemic of empathy. We need a, we need a movement. We need a, more than ever a movement which brings people together around goodness because there is just so much evil. And, you know, it's King who said, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to totally screw up the quote, but it's about, you know, it's not so much that he fears, you know, what his enemies will do, but the silence of his friends. And we need to remember this core, this core intention that doing good this is something that happens by default. We need to apply ourselves to that task. We need to engage ourselves in that, in that obligation, that moral obligation to do unto others. It's the most basic lesson of the Jewish, of the Christian, of the Muslim books of scripture. Do unto others. Love thy neighbor. I think we need that now more than ever. Jonathan Greenblatt, I want to nominate you to lead the kindness revolution that is building. And when I think about systems of power and I think of innocence, the only way to fight back, friends, is to step up boldly, courageously, and stepping out of comfort to say, no, I will not have this endured in my lifetime, whether this affects me or my neighbor, I will not allow it. And I also want to thank you for this very, very difficult and heartwired work because the amount of trauma that I think that you must have to endure every day by listening and hearing and simply caring so deeply is a gift 
to all of us who are getting motivated to joining you. And so I have to pivot this conversation to what I'm going to call the the Bernie Greenblatt moment. We've got to go to hope. We got to go to action. And so I want you to talk about how can we, every human being listening here, individuals, organizations, society, how can we strike back against hate? Walk us through ADL's formula for dismantling that hate and kind of talk us through what you've mentioned in your book as, as a needing of a whole of society approach. What does that look like for us? Well, I'm glad you asked about that, Becky, because I think one of the things, look, first of all, you're being way too kind in terms of me. I mean, I think, uh, look, I may have this particular job. I may be in this particular role, but there are 340 some odd million of us yeah. who need to be part of this struggle. And as you were kind of uh, sort of alluding to earlier, there are 7 billion of us who got to be part of this. Now let's take it, for, let's not, let's acknowledge that we all hit the lottery by being born where we were, yeah. when we were, uh, to whom we did. I mean, there are 4 billion people on the planet who live on less than $4 a day. So they might not have the luxury of thinking about some of these bigger issues, which I think we should acknowledge that and let that sit with us. But that being said, as we want to create a more fair and just world, I think all of us had a role to play, which gets to the whole of, and I think all of us live with this. I mean, again, the horror of Texas, we all have to live with this pain. And I mean, no, clearly none more so than the families in Uvalde. You know, in a concentric circle out beyond them are the families from Newtown or Las Vegas or Buffalo or Charleston or Oak Creek or El Paso or Aurora, you know, or so many of the cities that have dealt with these issues of ma- these mass casualty incidents, right? And I know for them, there's all the PTSD that must come up, right? Because we still haven't solved this stuff. But I will say that all of us, I think, feel burdened by this moment and want to figure out what we do. So the only way we will solve this epidemic of extremism, the only way we will be able to to effectively, I think, turn back the tide on this on this this rising wave of hate is with a whole of society strategy. What I mean by that is Joe Biden said, you know, he ran for president because he saw what President Trump, how he responded or if you will, didn't respond to Charlottesville when they were chanting Jews will not replace us, when they were protesting against, you know, removing Confederate statues, right? When they murdered Heather Heyer in broad daylight, they ran her down, a white supremacist did. So that's why I'm running. But reality is fighting hate, creating a culture of kindness. It is not the job of just the president, although he's got a crucial role to play, or our elected representatives, and they better step up. Like, yes, I wouldn't even need courage from them. Like, 90% of Americans want background right. checks. There's a question <laughs> of courage. That's a question of right. arithmetic. I think that we also need electeds and policymakers also at the state and local level. We also need businesses to assert their role. We also need members of the clergy and houses of worship. We also need universities and, and educational institutions and the leaders who run them. We also need nonprofits and actors in civil society, like, if you will, in ADL, and there are many, many others. We also need, again, ordinary citizens. I mean, I think we need a broad-based movement that draws in all of the different um, entities that take it together, constitute our society. So whole of society strategy. But, you know, look, it does require leadership. And so it does require someone like a President Biden 
it does require somebody like the the speaker of the house the minority leader of the of the house or the their counterparts in the senate it does require a set of governors blue and red republicans and democrats let's come together and say you know what we need to tuck this together because what i will say is that extremism i think it was barry goldwater he ran for you know ran for president in 1964 he said extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice i think something like that actually you know what Ooh. extremism is dangerous extremism is a landmine that will explode regardless of who steps on it it doesn't discriminate based on your party or your politics in the end it destroys everyone right wing extremism left wing radicalism again religious fundamentalism okay extremism to everyone that doesn't mean that doesn't i'm not suggesting we don't have to shake things up we need to disrupt we shouldn't over index on civility in a moment when we need a kind of energy but extremism dehumanizing delegitimizing denying the rights of our fellow americans or any other people is i think a fundamentally flawed way of not just viewing the world but of living together as human beings so we need a whole of society strategy that brings everyone together we need a, a revolution a radical revolution that doesn't elevate extremism but that yes. invests people in common goals around which we can come together that will require compromise that will require you know putting aside some of those areas where we just don't agree but we have we we have so much more in common than the things that keep us apart I mean, thank you for leading us to this point. I think whoever's listening today, this is activation. We're talking to each one of us to find our place in this, to find our voice in this. Um, so thanks for leading us there, Jonathan. We're pained to ask this, but I wonder if you could distill your wisdom, your mantra into a one good thing. We ask all of our guests to leave the conversation. It could be a mantra, it could be a life hack. Well, I guess I would say fight, hate, but also find hope. We need to recognize that in order to resist like this kind of siren's call of extremism and this rising tide of intolerance which we need to do, we also need to find ways to come together as communities. So I think even as we push back on hate which we must do, we've got to pull together and find hope. That is the only way we come through this. I've got to just thread this as we close out. I got to add one good thing here. Go diversify your experiences. I am a Christian. My most favorite donor that I've ever had is a man named Dr. Paul Silverstein. He was a Jewish burn surgeon here in Oklahoma City. And he invited me to Chabad. I went to a challah bread making ceremony. And when I sat with the Jewish community and felt so much love I just thought this is an experience that we all need to have. Find someone who has a different lived experience than you. Live in the humanity and open your eyes to the warmth of the people and the peace because that changes your viewpoint. It opens your heart. I, I have to dedicate this, this episode to Dr. Silverstein who did that for me. And I want you to take the Dr. Silversteins, the Bernie Greenblatts, wherever you are, and I want you to channel that diversity of thought, 
of lived experience. Embrace it into your heart, people, because that is how true change starts to act. And then bring in your children or a next generation and normalize this is the way because that is how systems of change can happen. Well, I've got to tell you something. I mean, I didn't realize, Becky, you're in Oklahoma City. I mean, I mean, Oklahoma City is an example of what happens when you don't challenge extremism, right? Oklahoma City literally is exhibit A for how things can literally blow up, how things can fall apart. Now, that being said, it's also a city that demonstrates how we can come together. I mean, I know how diverse that community is, indigenous people, black people, brown people, white people, Christians and Jews and Muslims and immigrants and, and, and native born. It's a remarkable place. That's part of why I think Timothy McVeigh targeted it. And yet I think it's part of why it res- it demonstrates how we can we can reach, we can dig deep and reach higher. And we've got to, and we must. So I am grateful, so grateful that you've given me the opportunity to share with you today. I think this is just the start. I really do. But there's so much, I mean, as hard as things are, you know, they say it's darkest before the dawn. Look, the, the next generation is so much more open-minded. You know, the resilience of our democracy, it has endured global conflicts. It has endured, you know, domestic civil war. It has endured economic calamity. It has endured drought, like in Oklahoma and in the breadbasket, the 1920s. I mean, and yet America has always come through. So I have absolute optimism that we can do this if we choose to do this. I hope we make the right choice. Amen. Yeah, what a beautiful way to round this out. So let's connect people with ADL and with you as we close this out. What's the best way for people to get connected with you and the team? I think just go to our website, ADL.org. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter or any of the major or Insta or the social platforms. But ADL.org has all the info, lots of good stuff. And um, yeah, I hope people check it out. Thank you guys very, very much. Really, this was fun. We appreciate you. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.